Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet. I'm Richard Lane and it's Friday, October the 3rd. This week we're focusing on a three-part series published in The Lancet about fertility preservation. In a moment I'll be speaking to one of the authors of the third paper in the series, Dr Sherman Silber from the Infertility Centre at St Luke's Hospital in St Louis in the United States. Also to mention... After the interview with Dr. Silver, we're going to be hearing from the recently appointed President of the Medical Research Council in South Africa, Professor Glenda Gray. She is the subject of a profile in this week's issue, dated October the 4th to the 10th. But back to fertility, and we publish a three-part series specifically looking at fertility preservation. This is increasingly common due to developments now in cryopreservation, which means that oocytes and ovarian tissue can be frozen for later use. The first two papers consider these techniques within the context of people who have been given cancer treatment. And the third paper in the series considers these advancements and the potential for women who want to preserve eggs and ovarian tissue to delay motherhood. Earlier I spoke to Dr Sherman Silber and I began by asking him to explain a bit more about the relatively recent process, that is the cryopreservation of ovarian tissue. Right. Now we were doing um, cryopreservation uh, with slow freeze as early as uh, 1996 uh, with no idea uh, whether or not this, for cancer patients, um, no idea whether this would really um, ever pan out, but we knew from a 1994 study in sheep, uh, Gosden, and in many studies going back to the 1950s, really, we knew that at least in experimental animals, you could freeze the ovarian tissue with the slow freeze technique, thaw it out, transplant it, and uh, get over normal ovarian function. So, I mean, there were lots of animal studies in 19, from 1954 on that seemed to demonstrate this was possible, but everybody's afraid to do it in humans. We were among the first to start freezing ovarian tissue, telling patients we didn't know if this would ever pay off because now they have to do their cancer treatment. And then they, you know, they're young kids and then they, they get married, who knows when. And we may, they may come back 10 or 20 years later to see whether we can do anything with this ovarian tissue. We did a fresh ovarian transplant in that year that was reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, the first one, uh, from an identical twin sister who had eggs to her identical twin sister who was born with no eggs. It worked and she got pregnant right away. In fact, she has three children from this. That was 2004. That was a critical paper. So my paper on the fresh ovary transplant, then uh, Donay, who was using frozen tissue for the first time in, the, in a similar way. His paper was published in Lancet. And then it proceeded uh, in, uh, greatly, and people got very excited about it. And, um, in fact, like I told you now, there, there's really over 40 uh, babies uh, from cancer patients who had their ovary frozen, you know, decades ago, who we told we had no idea whether this would really be a value of them in the future, but it's their, their only hope and there is animal data supporting it. Interesting thing is, uh, there were two, there were two fears involved. Uh, one, the biggest fear was that if you transplanted this frozen ovarian tissue back, that, uh, you might introduce cancer cells for these patients. Now, this has been done in so many patients with the approval of the oncologists who do really great DNA 
uh, marking PCR testing of the uh, uh, of a, of a portion of the tissue to make sure there's no cancer in it. What they've really discovered is cancer cells just don't like to go to the ovarian cortex. They absolutely don't like it. And the only case where they go to the ovarian cortex is leukemia. However, the usual thing with leukemia is to treat them first, get them in remission, and then sometime after their remission, you know it's going to come back because it's in the bone marrow. That's the time. If you take out the ovary at that time, during that period of time, there will be no leukemic cells in the ovarian tissue. And so, therefore, even with leukemia patients, let alone um, uh, yeah, let alone um, Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or brain cancer or, um, I don't know, cancer of the cervix, any, any of the cancers you can think of that you might worry about introducing when you transplant back the ovarian cortex, they just don't go to the ovarian cortex. Now, here's the reason why. That ovarian cortex is extraordinarily tough and poorly vascularized tissue. It, it's like a it feels like a, it's like a skin grad. It's really tough. It's tougher than skin. A lot of studies have been done of what tissue in the body, this is very interesting, what tissue in the body is the toughest tissue? Like they'll take from cadavers, they'll take well, a ligament, uh, they'll take Achilles tendon, and they'll take this well, tunica albigenia of the testes, which embryologically is no different than the ovarian cortex. And they'll put it on a tensiometer to see where it breaks. And they found, this is old studies, and they found that the toughest tissue in the body is this tunica albuginea of the testicle, which is no different than the ovarian cortex. So it's not a place where cancer cells want to go. So all these cases have been done around the world, and there's been no transmission of cancer in any of these cases. So you started in 96, and, and I realized at that stage you didn't know. It was, it was clearly experimental then. What is the situation now, 2014? Just take the past five or ten years. How, how, how much of an increase has there been now in, in, in female cancer patients aiming to preserve their fertility this way? Well, we, have, we alone have hundreds and hundreds of uh, female cancer patients with ovarian tissue frozen. But like I say, they come back 10 or 15 years later to actually, uh, you know, have their uh, tissue frozen. If you're comparing with banking eggs with banking ovarian tissue, I know if you're about to undergo cancer treatment, there's a logistical issue because banking eggs takes time. You've got to have cycles of follicle stimulation and that, and, you've, and the priority must be having the treatment for the cancer. So I can see having banking ovarian tissue is, is, is a quicker and probably a, be a better option. What about success rates of, of um, banking eggs compared with banking ovarian tissue? Well, you said it very well. Ovarian tissue certainly is preferable for cancer patients now that we know we're not transplanting back cancer cells. Uh, and, and the success rate is extremely high. In our own particular program, um, uh, we, we have uh, uh, about a 67% uh, pregnancy rate so far. Uh, but there is one thing that limits pregnancy, and that's the uh, uterine radiation. Those patients often get pregnant and miscarry, and the uterus gradually gets bigger. And believe it or not, I mean, it lasts so long. I mean, this thing, these things last for 10 years uh, or more. Eventually, they get pregnant and carry their baby. And uh, so we've had several patients with tiny little uteruses from uh, uh, the radiation 
and they may not get pregnant right away or deliver, or they do get pregnant right away and they don't deliver, but eventually they get pregnant and they deliver. And so uh, that's the only difference. So all the patients have return of normal ovarian function. There hasn't been a single failure uh, to recover menstruation and ovulation. Not, not a single failure. It's very, very interesting. So is the ovarian tissue transplantation more successful in terms of success rate than, than egg replacement? Oh, I'm, I'm sure of that, yeah. right. Because, you know, you're only going to get... Now, we, we do egg freezing, of course. We pioneered that in the United States and wrote papers on it. You know, the original Hamburg uh, et al. paper was from uh, our group at the University of Amsterdam, and, you know, I was one of the authors on that. And we were pushing very hard for um, uh, elective egg freezing to preserve the biological clock. And um, women will tend, if they're cancer patients, they understand the importance of just getting the ovary frozen and getting on with their cancer treatment. And that's, and there isn't much question about that. Some patients will be talked into freezing eggs and they get their cancer treatment delayed and they only get maybe one cycle and out of one cycle, they're not going to have an extremely high pregnancy rate. Uh, whereas with our patients, I mean, they basically can all get pregnant, really, because those ovaries last for over 10 years, and sooner or later, the effect of radiation is uh, going to be uh, overcome by a gradually enlarging uterus. But so they all recover fertility in terms of uh, eggs, and in fact, they could do IVF with a gestational surrogate. If um, uh, if the uterus it was a serious problem, but the vast majority of them just wait and they get pregnant, and we have very high pregnancy rate. Now the question is, what is the best thing to do for social freezing? Well, the vast majority of women view, uh, say, ovary freezing as invasive, and if they're just they're not facing cancer, they're not facing the immediate loss of their fertility. Uh, that most of them will choose just to do um, egg freezing, uh, but I tell them that uh, you can't just do one cycle and think you've got any security, and it would be really a false sense of security, a great risk that some of these women will, will really think that they have no problem getting pregnant, and so they'll purposely put it off until they're 40 or so and uh, be disappointed because their one cycle of egg freezing is only going to give them, if it's done right, about a 50% pregnancy rate. So I think they, they need to they need to do three cycles. They have all the time in the world to do three cycles because they don't have cancer. So so that would be the way I recommend it. If you're going to freeze eggs for social reasons, you better plan on doing uh, three cycles anyway. So we've been way, doing this since 1997, and we finally you know, have, have good results. We have 11, 11 women that we've uh, uh, transplanted ovarian tissue back to out of, you know, hundreds who've got frozen. And every one of them has a completely normal return of ovulation and menstruation. And uh, sometimes you have to wait a while. Of the, of the uh, eight that we have uh, over a year follow-up on, uh, six got pregnant, one miscarried. So we have five babies. Not bad uh, for uh, for eight of these cases that were transplanted back, mm. and um, and what we found is some uh, with fresh transplantation where we really have experience with this, we have we have eleven fresh transplants from women who had um, normal uh, eggs to their sister who had no eggs, 
And uh, the, the findings are no different than in frozen. Frozen versus fresh is no different. And uh, sometimes it takes two years uh, before they finally get pregnant, but they do get pregnant. And they continue to have normal um, ovulation and uh, menstruation. And let's now hear from Professor Glenda Gray, who's going to give us a bit more insight behind her profile published in this week's issue. She has recently been appointed president of the Medical Research Council in South Africa. It's an interesting era to be uh, leading the Medical Research Council. There was a, a review of the MRC and, and the, the notes that it had gone from a, a dual, a national resource and a dual, to this mediocre sound council. It was a recommendation to completely reform it. The Minister of Health asked Slim, you know, Slim to come in and clean up the place. She did, you know, he, you know it was a, it was a, it, was a uh, it must have been a very hard job to come in and basically cut the intramural program, retrench scientists and close down programs. It was a, brut- a brutal but very necessary revitalization uh, uh, program. He did a wonderful job in freeing up uh, some of the money uh, to, to make sure that we could spend it you know, in a better way. And so I came along, um, so I inherited, um, an, you know, inherited an organization from Slim that, that had got its, its heart in order. And it was, it was my, it's my job to, to put it on a hyperbolic, hyperbole, hyper-ada to basically to, to, to grow it and to take it from good to, to great, essentially. So what I focused on, so we're spending, so at the moment, so um, we have, you know, we have this intramural program, extramural program, and, um, you know, we have some support around it. And so what we've, we've tried to do is to make sure that we have this, what we call a 20-40-40 split of money and that 40% of our money goes out at, at our doors into extramural programs into universities in South Africa. 40% um, remains in the intramural program and 20% supports both intramural and extramural in terms of legal, finance, auditing, you know, and um, making sure that the science that we do, you know, we spend well. And so my job, you know, I see my job in the next couple of years is to add value. So basically, at the moment, we, we're spending in the right areas. So we looked at the 10 most common causes of death in South Africa, and we've, we, we spend our budget according to the, the 10 top causes of, of mortality in South Africa. And although we have, we've aligned our spend in that area, you know, my job now is to look at um, how we spend our money in that area. So to look at the quality of research that we do and ask pointed questions, well, you are spending money in, in say, HIV or, or AIDS or TB, but, you know, are you adding value? Are you going to make an impact? And if you're not going to make an impact, let's change direction. Let's relook really at your your research program because I don't I don't just want to spend money in TB. I want to spend money in TB that's going to make an impact. Now I'm going through the programs and saying, if this if this program is not going to give us impact, value for money, change the way we do things in South Africa, then you you need to refocus. And so the, so this is the conversation I've been having. You know, I've looked at the distribution of spend. Maternal and child health is a huge area of concern for me. I'm a pediatrician, and I came to the MRC and, and we found that, that less than 5% of our budget is spent on maternal and child health, and that's distressing for me because it's one of the top causes of, of mortality in South Africa. When I look at the epidemiology of maternal and child health in the last 20 years, although we've changed, um, we've impacted on infant mortality rate in that we've brought down 
uh, the deaths of children in the first year of life because we've rolled out PMTCT and we've rolled out immunization programs. When you look at the first 28 days of life, um, we have not we have not done anything in 20 years in that space. And so I called together a group of, group of obstetricians and said, like, what the hell is going on here? Babies are dying in the first 28 days of life because labor is, is poorly managed because there's not enough staff, not enough equipment, not enough adequately trained staff. And so babies are dying because they have birth asphyxia, they are fetal distress and it's poorly managed, there's still births. There's a high-risk pregnancies that are not being recognized or managed properly. So I've looked at that area and I said, okay, we're going to fund, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to make money available to, to fund programs in this, in, in this space that, that will impact directly on um, averting child unnecessary neonatal deaths and try to look at, um, at you know, some of the structural causes of why children die in the first um, day of life and then the first 28 days of life. So basically re- re-engineering some of the um, maternal, I mean, infant and neonatal uh, money and, and also making sure that we allocate money into this area so that we can do some some. Uh, uh, cutting-edge, high-impact science that I know, you know, I think this is, for me, it's low-hanging fruit. You know, if we can sure. get um, this area right, you know, we can we can make um, our, uh, our MDGs because, you know, that's what's bringing us down is the, the first 28 days first of, 20 of life. Then you look at maternal and child health and, you know, and then, and then, I mean, you look at maternal, um, you look at women dying in pregnancy, delivery, and in the postpartum period, and they're dying from the three H's, hypertension, um, HIV and um, and uh, uh, hemorrhage. Yeah. And and you say, well, why haven't we innovated in in why aren't we preventing hemorrhage? Why aren't we managing hypertension properly? And then you know, so so starting to address some of the the causes of of heart of heart causes of you know, we, so we we we're watching HIV. HIVs. We're very good at managing HIV in this country, and we've put a lot of attention to it. And now to basically say, okay. Okay, you know, what are the other things that we have to focus on to improve maternal mortality in South Africa? Many thanks to Glenda Gray and earlier to Sherman Silver. And thank you all for listening. See you next time.